With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by two of the brightest people in Parliament. Liam Byrne, the Labour MP for Hodge Hill, and Stuart Wood, or Lord Stuart Wood of Anfield, who's a former advisor to Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. And they have very kindly agreed to join me to discuss the decline of the left in Europe primarily, but also in the States as well in some respects. And what we're seeing is that the centre-left parties are struggling. Um, of the 28 governments in the EU, only six, I can count, have left-wing governments, mm. and four or five of those are all in minority governments as well. And this is a kind of massive downturn. I mean, you look at Germany, you've got 20% decline in the Social Democratic Party down there. The Dutch Workers' Party's been struggling. It's happening in Norway. Um, in France, Bernard Hadouin, it's down to almost like 6% or something mm. pathetic. So, the question I'm going to ask you is very bright, folks, is why is this happening and what do we do about it? So, Stuart, wh- why are we seeing this? Well, I think you've got to distinguish between long-term and short-term things. I mean, the long-term trend is that, that parties of the centre-left, social democratic parties, Labour parties, were based on a certain kind of social contract that has just gone. The idea that there were large numbers of people, mostly men, working in manufacturing industries, skilled and semi-skilled and unskilled jobs combined, strong trade unions allied to politicians drawn from a mixture of middle-class backgrounds in the cities and working-class backgrounds elsewhere, making the case for the rights and interests of those people. Now, that sociological profile has gone in most countries, and that decline of that identity between a working-class and lower-middle-class working population, strong trade unions, and a centre-left party trying to create gains for that group primarily, like welfare states and full employment. That's been a historic achievement, and the social conditions underneath that have all gone. But I think more short term, for me, the biggest thing is actually the economic crash. The economic crash of 10 years ago smashed the sort of politics and economics of how the centre-left did its business. For 30 years, the centre-left, after the late 70s, the centre-left sort of gradually came back to a period of pretty successful uh, politics, um, by essentially using economic growth to finance its lefty work, public investment redistribution. And actually, New Labour was the greatest example of that, so much so that other countries like the German Social Democrats tried to copy it. The economic crash meant that model was just no longer tenable anymore. You couldn't rely on the fat of the land to finance your redistribution and public investment. And the left, I think, forgot that being on the left was about far more than tax and transfer social democracy. And that, for me, is the ultimate intellectual problem of the left. And those parties that are doing much better than you might think, and I have to say Labour Party, whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, mm. is definitely one of those. 
uh, is doing so precisely because I think they've departed from that model and moved on. We're going to come back to kind sure. of whether Corbyn is bucking the trend or, or not. Sure. Um, but why is it, Liam, you know, you were, you were there at the height of the economic crash, you, you were in the Treasury. Why is it that parties turn to the right rather than the left after it? So I think you've got, you, you've got a couple of things going on here that um, we need to focus on. So I think, Stuart, it's right to say there are some big structural changes in, in politics at the moment. For, for me, the most important is the ageing society. So if you look at turnout rates and voter registration rates, I think that at the next election, the majority of voters will be over the age of 55. And the majority of uh, voters, therefore, will be on a fixed income. They will be on a pension. Um, so we've just got to recognise that older voters have different interests to younger voters. And there is a bit of a clash of generations at the moment. So under the age of about 45, the clear majority of voters are Labour supporting. Over 55, it becomes much, much more um, conservative voting. So that's one thing that's going on. The second thing that's going on is... Um, you know, some big changes in the world. So living standards have been uh, growing really, really slowly for a long time. We've also got the biggest movement of people into Europe since the Second World War. And if you look at the facts, you've also got a, a new spike in global levels of violence. So if you ask people what their kind of um, order of priorities is for politicians, very often um, order, law and order, border control, Will be at top of the top of the list, and also older voters have just got very different attitudes to the role of public spending and the need to control debt than younger voters. Younger voters would support new investment in housing, in education, in the things that help them get up the ladder. Older voters have got very different interests, so you can't kind of separate these um, these two sets of things that are going on. And, and Stuart, so is it, is, is it a problem with personalities or is it a problem with manifestos or is it kind of a sixth issue that, you know, you have downturns on the left and they kind of rise up again as we saw kind of, you know, they, they went kind of down in the 1950s and came up in the 60s again and then you saw them come up again in the 90s? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, there is a sixth element and of course there are, per, I mean, there are personality issues too. Of course there are. But it, look, what's interesting is that every time you go to another country in Europe and have as Liam and I do conferences about what's happening to the left. Why are we in such crisis? The, the analysis is so insular, and it is in this country too. It's very insular. It's about Ed Miliband's failure in response to Gordon Brown's failure, Jeremy Corbyn's strategic ineptitude, or whatever you know criticism you might pop at a leader. It's about much more than that because it's a it's a massive trend. It's a, it's a trend across the West, and I think it is, it's it's a cyclical problem, but it could be a terminal cyclical moment if there is such a thing because. Um, the, the, the question for the centre left is, you know, what, 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 does the, what does the left get out of bed for in the morning? I mean, the left doesn't get out of bed in the morning to preserve spending for departments, right? And yet somehow we got into a position where preserving spending became the key totemic thing about what it was to be on the left. I mean, the left is about fundamental injustice and, and life chances and inequalities. And I think one of the fascinating things Liam pointed to is in the last 10 years across Western countries, living standards have gone down. Actually, inequality in Britain, for example, hasn't really gone down, gone up, sorry, in the last 10, 15 years. It, the damage was done in the 90s. But that inequality has become politicised, in my view, by a precipitate decline in living standards. By the way, Liam was one of the first people in, inside the new Labour government to point this out to Gordon Brown. I remember very well him walking in with a paper saying there's something weird going on with living standards here. And we were slow as a government to respond to that. Yeah, I, think, I, I didn't get very far with no, that. No, you didn't get very far. <laughs> we're still trying. Uh, but, but I think, I think the, the left now has to have an answer about 
which, which is more than just about rejigging public spending. That's not to say public spending is not absolutely crucial. That, for me, is the intellectual leap the left has to do in order to stay relevant. Because if we're in a game about who can be slightly nicer on immigration and slightly more generous on public spending, the left has not got a future, in my view. What about the problem you're getting of this kind of refracturing of the left as well? How, mm. how do you kind of hold it together? So, you've, you, for example, in Spain, you've got you know the Socialist Party, which are now actually in power, but only as a kind of a, a dint of the kind of implosion of the Partido Popular. But you've got Podemos taking up an awful lot of the space they used to hold. You've got a similar situation in France. Um, you've got you know in, in America, it's fascinating. You've got this kind of you know kind of outsider Democrat, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, taking a, a kind of who's a kind of Bernie Sanders kind of kind of stream of a democratic party taking kind of you know a the nomination of a traditional democrat so, so you know you've got this kind of these outsider movements coming in as well how, how do you how do you is this going to mean you're going to get the kind of permanent factoring so, of the left or no, is this so, a- so, so they're born of frustration with them with the mainstream left and look i mean the the, the the basic challenge for the mainstream left over the next 10 years is how do you mend the new capitalism and end the new nationalism you know the rising level of nationalism at the moment i think is incredibly dangerous but its roots lie in the way that capitalism is changing. And so I, th- I think there's a couple of things we've got to zero in on here. So one is the rise of what I call technopoly. So the rise of tech-enabled huge monopolies. That's not just your Facebooks and Googles and so on, but actually in every sector in the economy, you've got monopolies basically beginning to take control. Now, that's not my argument. That's the IMF's argument. The IMF published a, a seminal paper about a week and a half ago which showed monopolies arising all over the place. Now what that is doing is creating incredible new inequalities in wealth. So a lot of the debate about inequality focuses on income. That's the wrong thing to look at in my view. I think you have to look at wealth. Half of world wealth is now in the hands of the top 1%. But here's the dystopia that lies ahead. If current trends persist, two-thirds of global wealth, that's $300 trillion, will be in the hands of the top one percent in the world. So equality in this century is about to become impossible unless we change course now. Now what the left has got to do to respond to this is actually go back to the radical tradition that was born you know in the 1780s and 1790s and if you look at the language that we used to use back then we used to talk about the norms of the moral economy, the medieval economy in a way, just price, just wage, controls on usury. And if you look at the original language of the Chartists, what they talk about was the, the liberties of freeborn Englishmen. We wouldn't quite use that expression today. But the idea of that we should have the liberty, the freedom to earn a good life, that is the basic idea at the heart of the moral economy. And the moral economy is breaking down in the face of the market economy. And so what the left has got to do is kind of call out the trends that are now reshaping the world. People, by the way, are incredibly worried about the rising power of the top 1%. They think that will lead to rising levels of corruption, like the kind of Cambridge Analytica scandal. They think it will lead to undue business influence on government, as you can now see in Trump's White House. People are really, really worried about that. By 2030, people think that the top 1% will be more powerful than national governments, and they don't like the smell of that, thanks very much. But if we are to kind of win back people's confidence, we've got to go back to first principles. We've got to go back to the language and arguments of the radical left that emerged in, you know, at, at, at the birth of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I strongly, strongly agree with that, what Liam's has said. I mean, the left historically has had like these three phases. It started off as a rights movement to get rights for people who didn't have rights, who weren't represented, who didn't have rights at work. And it then became an institution-building business in the middle of the 20th century. The welfare state, full employment, public housing. 
And then in the last part of the 20th century, it became a spending project. And, and, and in, at new, that's not to denigrate New Labour, of which Liam and I were a sort of part, but its great achievements were revolutionising or re, reinvigorating the public sphere with investment. I think that was probably its primary achievement, rather than an institution-building achievement. That, for me, is that, that the crisis is now that it can no longer be a spending project. And the kind of radical transformation Liam's talking about has to require us like opening up the bonnet of the car of our economy and rewiring it. And that, so it has to become, I've called it a supply side, left wing supply side project. Yeah. It's got to get into the, the wiring of how the relationship between companies and governments, the relationship between companies and markets, you know, we, we were far, far too sanguine about globalization in, in, under new labor because we were, I think, so worried about labor being safe for England that we ended up being, I think, much too kind to the sort of disruptive forces of globalization. And so all of the, we've, we've got to have a sort of, a rewriting of the entire rules, it seems to me, about how private capital and democracy and citizens interact. And that is a, that goes back, as Liam says, to the pretty radical early, early 19th century, if not earlier, left-wing thinking. And I think that is what is, that's what should excite people, whatever left tradition you're from, mm. about the next phase. The sadness is I don't see many left parties grappling with that. I think that's, and that's, that's the challenge, I think. And, and coming back to what you were saying, um, Liam, about kind of, the, the dangers posed by, by, you know, kind of widening inequality. Why is it that people are moving or the populist right is proving more successful generally than the populist left? Why, why are they people gravitating towards that rather than to a? Because fear is the most powerful force in politics. Fear, fear is always more powerful than, than hope. And so you can see that a number of populist right parties, there have been about 40, 45 new political parties created in Europe in the last 10, 15 years. Most of them are on the right, on the radical right, nationalist right. And what they have been able to do is is mobilise anxieties about immigration and global security. In particular, uh, they have mobilised an Islamophobia to basically persuade people that their backs are against the wall and you know only strongman politics can save them. And of course, the, the history is that once authoritarians are in power, they rarely leave it. What they do is they begin dismantling the, the basics of liberal democracy. So next year, we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. You know, that was a, I remember that. It was such a moment of hope and optimism. We thought that capitalism had won. We thought that liberal democracy had won. And now we can see across um, Eastern Europe, we can see elements of this in the United States, You've got strong men presidents running on a nationalistic uh, agenda, and they are slowly but surely dismantling. So this is the like basis of liberal Victor Orban waging war with judges. You've got kind of you can see Erdogan in, in you Turkey, in Turkey, imprisoning civil servants, silencing the press. Exactly, and of course, you know this isn't just going on in a vacuum. This is going uh, on in a world where Russia is trying to sow divide and rule politics across. The NATO bloc because Russia is interested in disorder at the border because disorder at the border means less of a threat to Russia. So our enemies are kind of exploiting this. So, and, and, the, and the left is just, I mean, it's not just the left is in trouble, it's disappearing. There is no longer a left party of any description in the Polish parliament, right? There is nothing. Uh, Italy, I mean, the left is sort of, sort of reinvented itself in the Democratic Party, but you know, let's wait five years and see what happens there. France, I mean, I, I don't personally don't think Macron is a lefty at all. I mean, whether, mm-hmm. whether that matters or not is another issue. Uh, the, the traditional PS, Socialist Party, is in terrible, terrible shape. The Dutch, you mentioned in your introduction, Jason, Dutch came eighth in the general mm-hmm. election. Eighth. That wasn't, not just yeah. a bad third. It's not just like a bronze yeah. medal. They came eighth. 
So this is an ex- this is an absolutely existential crisis, and I don't think we should, as a nostalgia project, seek to keep alive the traditional Labour or Social Democratic parties. I think we should respond to what the electorate's telling us about the irrelevance of the things we bang on about and and kind of rechannel the radicalism, but, as Liam's been saying. But isn't the danger is that you're going to get increased polarisation because if you've got the, the strong men taking their countries further to the right, then you're going to the, the, the response to that of the left maybe is to move back further to um, the opposite direction. Well, in a way, I think this is a time of both incredibly mm. disheartening signals and very comforting signals for, for people on sort of part of politics that I'm on, that Liam and I are on, which is what's disheartening is if you look at public opinion across the West, Western Europe and immigration uh, or issues like welfare, um, there seems to be incredibly small sympathy for the sorts of policies that we probably think are decent and necessary for healthy functioning liberal democracies. But then if you look at issues to do with how you should respond to large multinationals not paying tax, for example, mm. uh, or, or, climate know, change, yeah. or, or climate change, I mean, there's extraordinary support, um, or even to be slightly more controversial, you know, I come from West Kent, you know, conservative West Kent is my traditional background, and most people there want the railways nationalised as soon as possible. I mean, I think there is no longer ideological fixity about a lot of things that have been barriers to the left before. Now, I think that, I think that, in a way, that gives opportunities as well as a cause for pessimism. But the most important signal it gives is you have to sort of recalibrate what, what sort of policies match your ideology, I think. This is probably a question for Stuart, as you are a member of Shadow Cabinet, but in, is Corbyn following the right path of kind of actually kind of building a kind of, a, you know, the coalition of the kind of, you know, what we used to describe as the far left and the centre left and you know, I mean, he did well, well at the last election. You know, he increased Labour share of a vote. It was a much better than expected performance. Is, is that the way forward for parties on the left, or is it a dead end? In the end? Well, I, def- I definitely think, to Corbyn's credit, there is, uh, I mean, Labour is polling roughly at 40% now. And there, are, and there is no other social democratic party in the West that is getting anywhere near that, as far as I can work out. The Swedes maybe from time to time. That's about it. And... Without breaking the traditional model, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's led Labour Party is doing incredibly well in that respect. And I think the, the thing he's brought to the, to the party, no pun intended, is the idea that politics has to be done in a different way. And that, that in itself is a political, a good thing for politics. It's not just a means to an end. It is an end to have a more open, larger membership, un-Westminster sort of way of doing politics. I think that is a good thing. Now, personally, I speak purely personally here. I don't see a great intellectual buzz around Labour Party at the moment. And I don't know if that's Jeremy Corbyn's responsibility. It's his responsibility, but obviously it's his fault. Um, I don't think there's a kind of invitation to rethink what the next 30 years would be like. You've got people like Liam who do it, you know, because he gets up in the morning and does it. He has done it for 30 years and he will continue to do he, it. He writes a couple of books before Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and there are individuals who are doing it, but I don't see a sort of culture of you know being adventurous having a kind of contest of ideas and i think that's partly because the corbyn project is itself a, a, a sort of well-formed set of ideas which it sees as a contest with the blairite past and i think that slightly nullifies intellectual debate if i'm honest but i think that there's a lot of things about the corbyn project which are a good platform for thinking more radically about where to go next okay, a question which you will be able to answer Liam, because it's one of the areas you've explored a lot is is and it's something you talked about, or we talked about right at the beginning of this conversation, which is this generational divide, mm. but also you've got a geographical divide. So you've got this danger of, of, of older voters becoming more and more conservative with a small and a large C, 
but also you've got labor struggling to do well in its traditional industrial heartlands. And I'm wondering how you kind of come up with a kind of policy platform which keeps labor's traditional heartlands on side at the same time as appealing to the younger, more metropolitan voters. So I think you've got to, you've got to go back to first principles in a way and, and, and work up from there. So the... The, the the first principle that Labour has command of is, is compassion and collaboration. So we're, we're a we party. We, we, we basically believe that you get on in life together as a society by doing things together. Um, the Tories are a me party. It's me, 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 me. And, and the reality is the Labour Party tends to win elections when we show how the we actually helps the me. So how do we do things together in a way that actually helps individuals thrive? So we actually need to talk a little bit more about compassion and collaboration. The generation that is coming through in our schools at the moment is probably the most collaborative generation in, in history because they're constantly on um, digital media. Their, their kind of watchwords are, are, what do we think of this? What do we think of that? They're just inherently collaborative. But what Labour's therefore got to do is we've got to kind of marry that to an, to an argument which is about which is about personal liberties, you know, the, the liberty to earn a good life, the, the, the liberty to raise a family in safety and security, uh, the liberty to live long in, in old age because you've got a great health system. And this is what, this is the, the bit of research I'm doing at the moment is just back to the kind of language that we use to, to mobilize people of all classes actually at the beginning of the industrial revolution. It's incredible the way in which we talked about liberties and freedoms that everybody deserved. And, and, and in truth, that language itself was born during the English Civil War. So the levellers in particular, uh, John Lilliburn and others, were the, were the great pioneers of this language. Now, Cromwell was a bit of an autocrat, and so you know, in the Putney debates, these folk got shut down pretty quickly. But the flame that they lit just, just burned brighter and brighter down the years. We, we've lost that argument over the years because for all sorts of good reasons, we have ended up focusing um, just al almost a bit too exclusively on equality. And people then ask, well, equality of what? And we've not often had good answers of that. And so what we've got to do is kind of go back to that mantra of kind of liberty, equality, fraternity. The fraternity bit, people get that. They know that Labour's the we party. Um, the equality bit, you know, they know that's our party too. It's, it's the liberty bit that we've just got to unpack and develop for this new age. How kind of far should, you know, this is kind of, kind of almost blue Labour territory. Is this, you know, flag and family are very important elements as well? Um, yes, although I think those are things that should be shown, not spoken about. I mean, not that you shouldn't <laughs> speak about flag and faith, but I, I think that you, I think your communitarianism you sort of wear as a characteristic of who you are and the kind of organisation you are. I don't think, I don't think it's the sort of thing that policy platforms are made of, personally. They may disagree with that, but I, I, I don't think that the Labour Party in the early part of the 20th century had to do speech after speech about those things. I think it was just part of the, you know, if you heard Ernest Bevan speak, you know those things are sort of there, and I think it's I think it's just um, I think it would be a mistake to think that we need to speechify about those things too much. That's probably my main quibble with the Blue Labour uh, part of the party. Okay, one last question. It's coming back to what you were saying here. You know, this is a more than an existential crisis. This is you know you're you're seeing kind of almost the evaporation of of you know centre left parties in, in Europe. What replaces them? I, I, well, think, I think the centre-left will, will, will respond. I mean, I'm, I'm really confident that people are deeply anxious about the trends in inequality that are coming, particularly the trends of wealth inequality, 
it's 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 not right that eighty five families own more than three billion people today. That that's deeply disturbing, and and you're beginning to see the consequences of that with rising levels of corruption, rising levels of tax avoidance, um, the dismantling of the you know the old constitutions that we created after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That that that's not okay for people. I think people are worried about that, and I and, and so I'm actually. I'm actually really optimistic that we will be able to set out an analysis of how capitalism has gone wrong um, and propose not, 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 not to end it, but certainly to mend it. I agree with that. I think reshaping, I mean, look, under Ed Miliband, and I'm responsible for this partly, under Ed Miliband, we, we thought, I think rightly, that reshaping capitalism was where the left had to be. Wrongly, we talked about it in those terms and people scratched their heads a bit too much. But that's the project. It has to be. Look, mm. social democracy in Western Europe has been incredibly successful in the 20th century at taking a modern, the emergence of a powerful modern industrialized economy and making sure that it worked for everyone rather than just for the top five or 10%. That has to be the case now with a very different kind of economy based on technological transformation. Yeah. That's the project. And it requires some serious rewriting of the rules of how our, our economy in particular works. That for me has to be where the center left is. I think what's interesting, though, if, I suspect if you talked to Jeremy Corbyn and asked him what were his favourite left parties in Europe, he would immediately say Syriza, Podemos. It's the, it's, the, it's the left populist alternative to social democrats that he finds exciting. And I think, with some reason, I think he's right to find them exciting because I do think if you can marry the sort of mass movement energy and sort of the, the extra parliamentary side of, of those movements with a forward-thinking agenda about facing the, the world as it is, not as you'd like it to be. That, for me, would be a pretty that would be a pretty powerful recipe for a successful successor to the social democracy we've had of the 20th century. So flexibility is key here. We, yeah, we can't just kind of rest on the laurels and say because we had a kind of successful social democratic model in the 1960s or in the 1990s that we can do it again. Yeah, I think nostalgia is the death of any party, whether it's social democrat or not, and whether it's nostalgia for. You know, 1960s or 1990s. I think you know that way. That way lies pretty much electoral oblivion. If you if you focus on that, you've got to look to the next 50 years. Just to be very fair to you, I mean, you could Ed Miliband was probably ahead of his time. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in terms of, I think, know, I think he was he was ahead of his time on 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 analysis and on putting his finger on on, on the issues that need to be addressed. I think I think the question is what what do you do in virtue of that? And we fell short on that. But that's not just Ed's problem or our problem. It's the problem of the left in general. I think. That was really interesting. Thank you very much for, for sharing your thoughts. And it's nice to kind of end on a slightly optimistic note. Uh, um, you can uh, go to our website, which is uh, mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes, A-Y-E-S. I'm on Twitter as at JBT Mirror. Stuart, you're on Twitter as? At Stuart Wood. Liam? At Liam Byrne MP. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back soon.